Greetings, all you 99 percenters. This is your host, Dr. Jack Rasmus. This is Alternative Visions. Okay, the title of today's show is, quote, Most Dangerous Time in Decades, unquote. Not my quote. That's what Jamie Dimon, the Chase Bank CEO, said today. Yeah. And what's he referring to? Well, he talks about these wars going on, Ukraine and Israel. He talks about contracting problems with global trade. He talks about Europe economy slipping into recession, particularly Germany, China slowing down, questions about Where's the U.S. economy going? Talk about soft landing is sort of fading away again as it becomes obvious with the latest reports about jobs and inflation that interest rates at their levels now are not doing the job. Okay, so uh, yeah, the elites are getting worried here, both economically and politically. For good reason. Uh, some other quotes here of interest. Uh, you know, Paul Krugman, the dean of liberal economists, has this column in New York Times. His latest column, believe it or not, says, the war on inflation is over and we won. What planet is this guy living on? I wonder. I'll talk about that topic today because we got the latest CPI report, which pretty much just confirmed what I've been saying for months. And then we've got the head of BlackRock, the financial firm BlackRock, saying, quote, get into cash to his investors. Whoa, get into cash means that mm, either more inflation is coming or Financial instability is coming and asset prices will fall, so get into cash in order to protect the value of your investment because that won't collapse. You see, when you got a crisis, the safest place is in cash because other assets will collapse and you're going to lose the value. So you won't lose the value on cash so investors move their money out of different kinds of assets, you know, financial bonds, stocks, whatever, and they put it in cash. Well, you know, the bond market, as we talked about last week, is getting pretty shaky. We'll talk about that some more, too. But there's a big uh, red flag this week about that, and that is the Federal Reserve didn't get to sell all of its bonds. It was a very poor sale. You know, it sells the bonds in order to raise money to help pay for the deficit. That's what the Fed does, among other things. Yeah. And no one wanted to buy everything the Fed had to offer. Why is that? Because they expect, expect rates to go higher. And the Fed wasn't offering high enough rates on its sales. So they just, investors sat, sat pat and wait for the next auction of Fed bonds. Yeah, 
Well, so that doesn't look too good, if it continues especially. And then we've got oil prices rising again. Hmm. Big surge. We'll talk about that. I want to talk about both the recent consumer price report for September this past month and the producer price report and the University of Michigan Consumer Survey just came out as well. Doesn't look good. We'll talk about that one. And then we should say something about the, you know, just the update on the UAW and other strikes that are continuing. Yeah, so, you know, Jamie Dimon has good reason to be a little concerned about what's going on here. You know, he's a kind of the spokesperson for... Uh, the f financial sector capitalist here. Uh, he's very, uh, well, you know, Chase is the biggest bank in the U.S. I think maybe even the world almost. So anyway, uh, you know, Jamie Dimon raising the red flag and Blackhawk raising the red flag. And a lot of crisis, a lot of, as they put it, you know, on the business media shows, Lots of uncertainty. And nothing the capitalists hate more than is uncertainty. They just uh, uh, pull in their claws and they sit tight economically when there's uncertainty. They don't know where things are going. And then, of course, we have the big uncertainty that erupted here this past week as well, and that is a uh, Hamas-Israel war. I uh, don't know if we have time to talk about that. I do want to talk about Ukraine. That's the other war. If we have time, maybe about the, you know what's going on in Israel because it's related to what will go on in Ukraine and in the U.S. But I don't know. We'll have enough time. And it's kind of early in that whole that whole conflict. Uh, you know, some really imminent uh, developments can really change that whole picture. So we may not have time to talk about that, but we certainly will next week if we don't this week. I'd, I'd rather kind of sum up where the situation is with Ukraine first. Okay, so let's just uh, jump right into this thing, right? Uh, the UAW strike update, okay? Uh, UAW President Fain said, quote, today, uh, we're entering a new phase of the fight and it demands a new approach. New approach. What does that mean? That the stand-up strategy is hmm, maybe going to be adjusted, certainly. You know, this is the strategy where the auto workers' leadership uh, is sort of... Uh, uh, going slow at the beginning. You know, they only walked out three plants the first week, and then the next couple weeks they've announced uh, additional walkouts. Uh, uh, they didn't announce any additional walkouts here today, although a couple of days ago uh, a key GM factory in Kentucky uh, did go on strike, walked out. But, you know, there's only 36,000 out of 146,000 UAW workers under contract on the picket lines. It's hardly a walkout, you know? 
I mean, how much pressure can you really put on a company <clears throat> when you only strike 36 out of 146,000? You know, I don't, they, they don't feel it very much. And look, we're at the fourth week of this. And I'll tell you, you know, from strikes from personal experience, the fourth week is kind of a uh, threshold. You know, that's when the bills start coming in. You know, the mortgage needs to be paid, the rent comes due or whatever, car payments, so forth. And it begins to crunch. And people start thinking, well, how much longer is this going to go on, you know? Uh, I don't think they put enough pressure on the auto companies to date. But the whole idea was is sort of a, a slow escalation of the pressure on the company, but 36,000, particularly since except for this GM plant that walked out where they do produce trucks and SUVs, highly profitable, they've been striking the non-profitable pretty much plants They've lost some time, I believe. I think the UEW lost some time. And, uh, you know, now if he's saying uh, we got to um, enter a new phase, which presumably means put more pressure on the company, I think they've lost uh, some critical time. You know, why, if they were going to start with only three factories, walkouts, they should have hit the three most profitable factories. Not the least profitable, but, you know, they thought, well, we can bring, probably thought, we can bring, you know, the auto companies, show them that we mean business and, you know, we, we won't hit them hard right away and they'll come to their senses realizing we could. Uh, but the auto companies and management never does that. The only thing they, they respond to is getting hurt. That's all. You know, I mean, you you hit them a little bit at a time, and they figure, well, okay, let's sit this out, see where it's going. You know, stand up strategy should have been hit the most profitable first, even if you're doing it in stages, little by little, not the least profitable. Anyway, um, no new walkouts announced here this Friday, as they had in previous Fridays, right? Uh, but uh, UAW President Fain said. Um, you know, we we may have walkouts without announcements from now on. Well, thank you. Announcements, yeah, that gives them time to prepare <laughs> to shut down, right? Yeah, well, okay. There are, it's a mixed picture. There are some gains, you know, like reportedly, as best you can tell through the media, you know, and, uh, of course, President Fain, uh, social media now, he, he's sort of given reports, which is good. Um, you know, as far as the media is concerned, uh, you know, it sounded like GM had agreed to uh, include all these electric, uh, one of these electric vehicle plants that they're going to be building here. Uh, I think it's a battery plant that that would fall under the union contract. I'm sure that's a, a union demand that all these electric new EV plants have to be under the union contract. I'm sure that's what's uh, being discussed. And the other big item is uh, a discussion about the getting rid of the two-tier. That's going to be a tough one, but the most important one maybe. 
And the other is uh, reinstating the cost of living adjustment. Now, I've heard that uh, Ford today has said that uh, it's increased its proposal slightly, uh, but the proposal includes a 10% raise up front and a restoration of the cost of living clause, the COLA. Well, that's exactly what Ford already agreed to in the Canadian auto negotiations at Unifor's, the plant up there, you know, maybe five or 6,000 auto workers. It agreed to just that, restore the COLA and 10% up front. That's what I predicted would be near the final proposal. And and Ford kind of all also said that, uh, um, I forget how he phrased it, but I think something that, well, they're at the limit, almost at the limit or at the limit, right? Ford says this is a 23% package. And uh, they're at the limit, five years, as I've predicted it would be. Union was at four, companies were at four and a half. Okay, so they'll give you a little bit more if you go longer, which gives them time to take it back. Okay, so 23% at the limit. Um, you see, that that's sort of a signal that there's very little left, as far as the company is concerned, to give. You know, there, there are certain phrases in, in bargaining uh, that are signals, right? Uh, when, when either party says, this is our, quote, last, best, and final offer, that usually means it. That usually means, okay, strike. Or it means, okay, we're not going to make any more. You know, let this thing go on and see, you know, who capitulates first. At the limit, there's not much more. I think, I think, Ford's position is 25 percent, which is what they did in Canada, which is what I said two weeks ago would be their position. And you're just sort of playing footsie with them here, walking out this plan and then this plan and so forth. You know, to be fair, UAW doesn't have a strike fund to walk everybody out. I think that's a big reason why it's sort of doing this piecemeal. You know, let the company run short of parts and lay off people. And maybe those get laid off. We'll be able to get unemployment benefits. Probably not, because it's strike-related. You know, you used to be able to get unemployment benefits years ago if you went out on strike, but they changed that rule that you can't get it in the strike situation. Okay, so... Um, that's the picture. That's the picture with the auto strike. Um, I don't think it'll go another month or more than another month. I think uh, Ford and GM and the others are around 25% on the money. You're going to have to throw a little sweetener out there, you know, for the pension, pension folks. You know, a little token thing on the pension side, which I think they'll do. Maybe that's the other 2% they're holding. Uh, I think they'll do some token effort to eliminate, well, they won't eliminate the two-tier. 
I mean, you, that's a big fight. To eliminate two-tier, uh, you'd have to have a knockdown, drag-out fight. No holds barred. So I don't think the UAW is going to get that eliminated. But it got the cola back, I, I, I predict. You know, Ford agrees to it. The others will agree to it. You'll get agreements of some kind, details unknown on the electric vehicle plants being part of the contract. How that occurs will will uh, yet to be defined. I don't know. A lot of details on that. You know, maybe the union will have to go and organize it and the company will stay neutral. I don't know. Or maybe they'll just agree to roll it into the contract, which is what the, the union wants. Okay, so um, we'll just have to see what happens here in the next month. Uh, but I don't see this thing going more than another month, both because of pressure on the union side and because of management, the corporations. And the settlement will be, as I've said in the past, somewhere a package, money package between 25 and 30%, which is just under what other unions have been getting, big unions like Teamsters at UPS and the West Coast Longshore Workers, you know, they got more than 30%. And uh, in the case of Teamsters, they, they really took a big bite out of the two-tier. But we'll see uh, where this ends up. At the same time, you know, we've got the uh, actor strike, which is continuing. I understand the negotiations broke down there. Uh, that that's an existential battle for uh, the writers. I mean, the uh, uh, actors, writers already threw in the towel after four months, but uh, the actors are still holding out because artificial intelligence is going to wipe out their jobs, just as electric vehicle technology is going to reduce the number of jobs in the auto industry significantly. You know, technology is just. It's just uh, tearing a hole in the labor movement. We'll see what happens with uh, the the actors. And if I can get more information, we can talk about that. But that's all about uh, artificial intelligence and job security. Okay, so that's the uh, labor uh, roundup here. Uh, another important uh, piece of information came out Today, I think it was the University of Michigan survey on consumers. You know, this is the the, the go-to survey statistical source on uh, uh, consumer expectations about inflation and about the economy and so forth. Uh, very important, uh, you know, where, where consumers and businesses may be thinking of where they where the economy is and what they need to do. Well, the survey, this is the sentiment, you know, how, how confident do they feel about the economy? Well, that took a big plunge here in the last month. It's an index, you know, it was at 68.1, it's down to 63. The uh, mainstream economists and all their brilliance had, had forecast Less than a 1% decline to 67, from 68 to 67. Of course, 63 
means it blew through that forecast. Not the first time they've been wrong. Okay. Uh, inflationary expectations is pretty important. And uh, that significantly rose. In other words, people expect inflation to rise. You hear that, Paul Krugman? Yeah. And their expectations of business conditions, which means the stability of the economy recession, plummeted 19% points. 19% points. Personal finances plummeted 15% points. That's a lot. That's a bottom fell out. Consumers are really worried all of a sudden. Well, not all of a sudden, but it's certainly past the qualitative uh, threshold here. And consumers are very, um, very worried. Well, wait a minute. Consumers are supposed to pull us out of this recession and give us a soft landing, right? Oh, they're doing so well. Consumer spending retail sales are doing so well. Yeah, but both of those numbers are not adjusted for inflation. Whenever you hear it, they're not adjusted for inflation. So, in truth, retail sales consumption is almost flat in real terms. But they don't tell you. They just, you know, New York Times, Krugman's boss, just throws out the statistics, you know. Maybe at the back of the article, at the very end, they say not adjusted for inflation or something, you know. Okay, so that's the University of Michigan Sentiment Survey and Inflationary Expectations Survey. Let's talk about inflation because the numbers just came out, a new CPI report for September. And uh, guess what? Inflation is going up. After the Fed record rapid rate hike, Supposedly going to, you know, depress demand and therefore prices not happening. Not happening. The CPI report, here's some takeaways. As I've been saying, every time I talk about this monthly report here, services prices are stuck at around five and a half to six percent. They're stuck for the last four months. They're not going down. And, of course, the service sector, which is 80% of the U.S. economy here, in this last CPI report, 5.7 annual rate. It's almost 6%. Stuck at 6%. It's been there, you know, for quite some time. In fact, the 5.7 represents a creeping up of the rate from the previous month, August. And what's the biggest contributor to services inflation? Rents and shelter. Biggest factor. Rents and shelter. Wait a minute. Jerome Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, last November, December, I remember him standing up there uh, talking about rate hikes, and giving an explanation of, you know, the economy, and him saying, oh, you know, rents are pretty high, but we expect 
next summer 23, which is just passed, uh, new contracts for rents, uh, and rents will come down sharply. So he said, rents are the biggest contributor now, right? Yeah, to inflation in the CPI. And it's a big weighted factor. Shelter is a big weighted factor. You know, all these 450 or so goods and services in the CPI have weights based upon how much of typical budget, household budget, has to go for that particular item. And, of course, you know, rents and housing is a big part. In fact, I think I saw something where now housing costs were almost 50%, in some places more than 50% of your monthly income. Incredible. That's why housing is so unaffordable, buying a house. Virtually unaffordable. I think, you know, maybe a couple percent of the population can buy houses, and those are the people who sell their house first, you know, and get some money in order to buy the next one. But, you know, mortgage rates are what, 7.5%? Go into 8 yeah. So if you look at the September CPI report, uh, it's rising faster on a monthly rate than it was in August. Yeah. Monthly rate was 0.4 for just that month. You know, when we when we say um, uh, it's re rising five and a half six percent, that's at an annual rate. Okay, uh, year to year, September 22, September 23. Okay, so, but um, this September 23. Uh, a 50% increase in the monthly rise, 50%, not 50% not rise in rates, but 50% rise compared to the rate in August, 0.4% in August, 0.6%, that's 50% increase. So rents are going up. Shelter is going up chronically high, it's stuck, and it's actually going up. What are the other areas that are going up? Auto insurance and repair. Yeah, that's rising, has been rising here last two months at an annual rate of over 20%. Both of them. Auto insurance and auto repair. You ever get your car fixed here? You know what I'm talking about. Look at your insurance bill. You know what I'm talking about, right? Also, in the last month and two, hospital services have been rising double-digit, and so have daycare services been rising double-digit. You know what that tells me is that with the end of COVID, support by the government, you know, the child care services and the hospital uh, services now, those sectors are jacking up the price because you don't have the government subsidies anymore. I mean, daycare services is a big part of a lot of working families' budget. And go to the hospital and see what happens, especially if you don't have insurance. Or, you know, if you have insurance, but it's one of these bullshit programs, Policies where, you know, you got $5,000 deductible 
Well, then you're going to get hit by these rising hospital prices. So I'm just talking about services here. These areas of services, which are really critical. You got to look at the services sector of the CPI report. Ignore all this talk about, oh, core and headline. You know, core is everything except food and energy and headline, you know. Ignore that classification and just look at services and goods prices. Now, the thing about the inflation of the past month is that not only services and rents in particular are going up, but so are goods prices once again. Goods, you know, discrete things that you buy and consume. Some of them you hold on for a while, you know, like your car. Others you uh, consume immediately when you buy it, like gasoline. Right? That's what they call durables and non-durables, okay? So what's happening there? Well, goods prices had come down quite a bit. from last fall until June. Goods prices had declined, mostly because gasoline and energy costs had declined. Those are goods. Yeah, they, they, they declined, no doubt. You know, whether the decline was due to the Fed rate hikes or just the slowing global economy or what other forces running, I don't know. It's hard to separate them out as to why, but they did come down. Goods prices came down, and that was the main reason why inflation came down in general. All items, goods and services, from 9% last, last summer, you know, to the, what is it, like 3.7%. It's mostly the goods deflation, but services came down very little and stayed there around the 6% mark, and now they're going back up again. Well, so are goods prices going back up again because energy prices are going back up again, particularly gasoline going back up again in the last three months. Yeah. In fact, the rise in, in goods prices in the last three months is... Uh, Three-fourths of it is due to energy cost rises, gasoline and fuel oil in particular. You know, in August, gasoline prices went up over 10% in one month. And they're still going up here in September. And the same with what's called fuel oil. That's been going up. Double digit on an annual rate here in the last two months, and that's going to go up some more. Why? Well, part of fuel oil is diesel, and all of a sudden there's a global shortage of diesel. Now, diesel oil is what your railroads and your truckers use. So if their prices go up, guess where that's going to get passed on to? Into the goods that they're carrying. You know, it takes three to six months for it to pass through, but it will. And now... There's all kind of talk about natural gas for the winter being a shortage of natural gas. Why? Because we're sending a lot of it to Europe because the Biden policy and, and the empire has been to drive Russia out of Europe. So the U.S. 
energy giants can sell their natural gas at a higher price to the Europeans and cause the German economy to tank, which is what's happening over there. Uh, but that creates a shortage. If you make you shipping this stuff to Europe, it creates a shortage eventually over here. Now, prices always go down for natural gas during the summer, and then they go up. I mean, here on the West Coast, wow, did we get hit with natural gas price increases last winter. Electric gas bills doubled, doubled. Other forces involved with that, but certainly, you know, the typical winter surge, you know, it's like it's like the oil companies. They know when people are going to start driving more in May, you know, they switch their refineries to produce gasoline and raise the price of, you know, and gasoline. Then in the winter, they reduce uh, some of their refining and gasoline because people are going to drive as much and they jack it up on fuel oil and natural gas and all, you know, I mean, they play this game with their refinering and, and they refuse to build refineries in this country so they can manipulate that choke point on retail prices for energy. And they use uh, rising global crude oil as an excuse. Well, look, the U.S. is producing, the U.S. is the biggest producer of crude oil. 13.4 or 5 million barrels a day. Tremendous. Biggest producer. Well, with all that supply and the economy not really booming, shouldn't the prices come down? No, because they've got to go through refinery, you see. Anyway, uh, the point is that uh, energy prices are going up, goods prices will go up as a result. That's going to be exacerbated now because the global supply is being cut back of crude as OPEC plus, that's what Russia, OPEC with Russia, are cutting their supplies to keep the price up as the global economy slows and demand slows. You know, slowing demand will bring price down. Creating a shortage in supply will bring the price back up. And there's a push and pull here uh, between those two demand and supply forces globally. And the price of a global barrel of uh, crude oil, you know, was up into the mid-90s, in the mid-80s now, it bounces up and down, up and down. But now, because of the problems in the Mideast, it will hit 100. No doubt. In my mind. Plus, you know, going to have a further supply shortage problem because uh, uh, Biden had uh, cut this deal with Iran that, uh, okay, Iran, if you would only increase your output, we'll eliminate our sanctions on your output because we need uh, to increase the supply to bring the global price of, of oil down, uh, we'll give you $6 billion of your money that we froze. That's the, that was the Biden, Biden deal, right? $6 billion of your money to produce more output so we can keep prices somewhat under control here in the U.S. for retail, gasoline, gasoline and diesel and whatever. 
Well, that fell through. Now that we have this crisis here with Hamas, that's off the table now. Off the table. So we're going to have continued shortages. And, uh, you know, related to that, the U.S. Uh, Biden said, oh, we're going to intensify our sanctions on a Russia because Russia is violating these these secondary parties, these uh, tanker ships are shipping Russian oil uh, higher, uh, oil priced higher than our artificial price caps of $60 a barrel. Yeah, that's what the U.S. and Europe says, you know, can't sell, can't sell or ship. The target is the shippers, you know, oil tankers, of which the Greeks and others in Europe are major players, right? So sanctioning the Greek shipping companies, uh, saying uh, you can't carry Russian oil because it's being sold at more than $60 a barrel. Well, we'll see what happens, you know. I mean, the Greek shippers are not the only oil company, oil tanker companies in the world. And so far, they've been finding a way around the sanctions to date. Ah, you know, these price caps, arrogant nonsense. You can't through dictate, political dictate, control the global price of oil. Impossible. So anyway, uh, you know, the price caps have failed and now they're trying to shore them up. But we're, we're going to be at $100 a barrel for oil, given these two wars, right? Uh, Russia, too, at one point, uh, I think a week or so ago, uh, banned the export of diesel fuel. Mm. That would create even a greater shortage in the West, but then they rescinded that. I don't know what's going on there. There's something, you know, either they thought they needed the revenue by selling it abroad or they found a way to get around the sanctions. I don't know. But anyway, there was some talk about diesel being not exported, and that caused the speculators to, uh, global speculators, to drive up the price of diesel. But we'll see what happens. All you truckers out there, you're going to pay a lot more than even even the uh, household car drivers here in the next couple of months. A lot of instability there. Now, coming behind, right behind this CPI report is the producer price index. That's the the, the price that uh, businesses pay to buy from other businesses. And, uh, you know, that was coming down from a 12% uh, annual rate last September 22. In June, it was negative 4%. So it was coming down nicely. But now it, too, is going back up over the last three months. Yeah. And three-fourths of that increase, three-fourths of that increase is energy. Energy. Businesses are paying more for energy, a lot more, just as consumers driving their SUVs are paying more. So the bottom line, summing up the inflation, it's, it's not only not going away, it's beginning to creep back up, both in services and in goods, being driven in both case, cases largely you know, 
on the good side at least, uh, by energy and oil companies. On the uh, services side, by uh, uh, landlords, rents, hospitals, auto companies, insurance companies, health insurance companies, whatever. Yeah, health insurance is going to go up too. You know, they, they kind of wait to the last quarter when uh, you have this open, open uh, for 50 million people. Uh, you can change your coverage here under Medicare. So they wait to see what that looks like. And then they jack up prices. Health insurers are going to join the show here in the fourth quarter. All right, so enough for inflation. Uh, all this has implications implications for the Federal Reserve monetary policy. I talked about that a little bit last week, right? Talk now is that the Fed needs to raise interest rates at short-term rates called policy rates, you know, 30, 60, 90, five-year bonds and bills, uh, up to six, six and a half percent. I've been saying you hit six percent, you're going to exacerbate financial instability in the regional banking system and the commercial real estate and in the treasury market now. Remember we talked about this treasury market becoming unstable as rates rise, right? Yeah, well, if they want to do something about inflation, they're going to have to raise them, but there's a cost to raising them. But that's short to raising short-term rates is what we're talking about. There's also long-term rates. 30-year rates for 30-year bonds, 10-year bonds, 30-year bonds. Those are long-term rates. Fed has little control over that, except it's contributing to the problem by selling off its long-term bond debt. You know, it's sitting on $8 trillion of long-term debt because of its past policies and bailouts, you know, during COVID and during uh, 2008-9 crash and the slow economic growth where it kept rates near zero for five years. You know, now it's paying the price for that. Is that nine, $9 trillion of debt? It's got to get rid of it. And it's been doing so for the past year, the policy called quantitative tightening. In other words, they're selling their bonds to raise money. You sell it, the investor gives you money, right? And the investor holds the bond, then the government has to pay the interest rate to that investor over the years. But the government gets a certain amount of money up front. The Fed is desperate to sell enough bonds in order to raise enough money to cover the $1.5 trillion and continuing, as far as the eye can see, annual deficits. You know, you either raise taxes, which they won't do, or you cut spending. Well, they won't cut defense spending. It's the biggest one. And there's not enough you can really cut even on the social programs to make a big difference. The only third way to finance the deficit is to sell bonds by the Fed. So the Fed has to sell a lot of bonds. And it's dumping, on top of that, is dumping the bonds that it already has. Well, that in increases the supply of bonds in the marketplace. And the more you increase the supply of anything, the lower the price goes. 
And when you talk about bonds, the lower the price, the higher the interest rate rises. They go automatically inversely. So if the Fed is flooding the market here to cover the deficits and get rid of QT, right, if it's flooding the market with a supply of treasuries, the price of treasuries is going down and the rates for long term are going up. And that's regardless of what the Fed does and these announcements about raising interest rates and so forth. That's short-term rates. It can influence short-term rates by also selling short-term treasuries. But long-term treasuries, that's occurring because it's dumping, it's dumping its debt selling the bonds that accumulated under these crises before onto the market. And that's causing long-term rates to go up. And there's other market forces that drive up long-term rates. Now, on top of that, it's worse because the prices of treasuries are falling and thus the rates long-term are rising because other countries aren't buying treasuries as much. China has reduced its treasury and holdings of U.S. treasuries and assets from 1.1 trillion to 800 billion in recent years as the U.S. starts going after China. China says, I don't want to get stuck holding all these treasuries because look what happened to Russia. The U.S. stole 300 billion of Russian treasuries. Yeah, now they're talking about using that to fund Ukraine. Yeah, pirate, piracy, economic piracy. They just froze and stole. Well, they did it with Venezuela. They do it wherever they, they, you know, implement sanctions. And there's at least a couple of dozen countries in the world where U.S. has implemented sanctions and stealing the money. That's what the empire does. You know, who wants to buy treasuries if it means that U.S. is going to steal them, freeze them? China's not. They're reducing. Well, if you reduce the demand for something, the price also falls. Increase the supply of something, the price falls. Of bonds, reduce the demand for bond, the price falls. Interest rates go up. Now, even Japan is slowing down its purchase, and that's caused by another thing, and that is as interest rates go up, the value of the dollar goes up. So if you're Japan, if you want to buy treasuries, you got to take your yen and exchange it for dollars, now, dollars are more expensive, so you're not going to buy as much dollars, and therefore you will not buy as much treasuries. So the demand for treasuries is going down. While the supply for treasuries is going up, that means the price is collapsing and interest rates are rising. And U.S. sanctions policy is kind of a warning to everybody. You better not buy U.S. treasuries anymore because you may never get them back, right? And the Fed either has to stop its rate increases, short and long term, and let inflation stay high, right? Or keep raising rates and risk financial instability in a number of markets, Or the higher the rates go, guess what? The Fed is shooting itself in the foot because the Fed then has to, when it higher rates, it has to pay higher interest when it sells these bonds. 
you know, short-term immunity, it gets the money it needs to cover the deficit, but that act actually exacerbates the deficit because if the Fed is selling more quantity of bonds at a higher interest rate it's got to pay, guess what? The interest payments going out, years two, three, five, ten, 10, whatever, cost more. And that exacerbates the deficit. Interest on the debt is ballooning. The interest costs on the debt, deficit and the debt, debt, debt that's just accumulated deficit. The interest rates on the debt are surging. In 2019, the total interest on, on, on the debt was cost the government, I think, like $280 billion. This year, it's $664 billion. And the Fed has to sell more at ever higher rates. A few more years, it's going to go to $900 billion. Before the end of the decade, it'll be over a trillion dollars that the Fed is going to have to, the government, the Treasury, is going to have to pay investors, capitalists, at home and abroad, corporations, big investors, whatever, for buying all these bonds. And that's going to crowd out even defense more spending, and certainly social programs even more. We are on a, a policy train wreck in this country. Fiscal policy is a big crisis, but monetary policy is a bigger crisis, and the two are exacerbating each other. And Biden doesn't know a damn thing about this. This guy is a dunce. And the elites, the neocons running the show, they are dunces. They don't understand. They are wrecking their own empire. They're so stupid. The quality of people running the U.S. government and their own empire has hit an all-time low. These people don't even know they're shooting themselves in both feet. They can't go on. Oh, but they are going on. You know, except in Ukraine here. Let me tell you, folks, the war is over in Ukraine. Ukraine lost. The puppet proxy government, Ukraine, has lost this war. The offensive has failed after four months, no gains. Right? They've lost the initiative. Russia is now on the initiative in the north and the south. Ukrainians have lost 90,000 men over the summer in this offensive and over 300,000 since this war began. They are now drafting people over 60 years old. They are conserving their military hardware, of which is running out. And these attacks that they had been doing are just small infantry incursions that rush up these valleys, valleys here in the, 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 the southern area, Zaborongia, right? And the Russian military then pummels them with artillery and they retreat back and forth, back and forth. That's what's going on. They're not even using their armor. They're running out of it. Yeah, U.S. and European stocks are depleting, especially of ammunition and artillery shells. Look, during the offensive, the Ukrainians were shooting 7,000 shells, artillery shells, a day. How many of these does the U.S. produce? I'm just talking about 155 millimeter shells. Maybe 25,000 a month. A month. 
they're running out of equipment like they're running out of men and running out of ammunition. The Ukraine military has other disadvantages that it has from the start. There's no air superiority. The Russian Air Force is now running uh, at, at will anywhere it wants. It has radar shortages. Many have been destroyed. It's always had a 10 to 1 artillery disadvantage. I mean, you can't win a war that way. And for a long time, it was sort of the same number of men and material you know, you, for three, four hundred thousand each, you know, and then they mobilized a couple hundred thousand more. Ukraine did had a, 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 a manpower advantage over Russia and Russia, you know, sort of pulled back to, to the east as a result. And Russia's building up now as Ukraine runs out of men and material. Russia is adding men and material they're training and mobilizing 500,000 more on top of their 300,000. They will have a million men by the spring trained, you know, fully, fully armed with plenty of ammunition. And the Ukrainian army is slowly dissipating. Yeah. That's a disaster. At some point, the Ukrainian army is just going to sort of disappear, I think. Uh, the U.S. senses this and it wants negotiations with Russia, but Russia's not going to negotiate with them. Not anymore. Not after the trick of the Minsk agreement in 2015. And not after what happened in Istanbul in April of 22, where Ukraine and Russia came to the table and they had agreed. But guess what? The EU in particular... And the U.S. told Zelensky, no, no deal. Yeah, they had a deal. They could have ended the war. And probably just had ceded just the Donetsk and Luhansk provinces. Now the rest, the other two are part of Russia. And Russia, Russia's second in command, Medvedev, and, and the, the head of the Duma, the legislature, have said that um, we're going to add four more provinces. Yeah, Kharkov and a couple of others there. Mikolaev, Odessa, whatever. Yeah, they're going to lose more, more land. No doubt about it. The sanctions have failed, as we've said. Russian military production is increasing. Its economy is growing faster than Germany. Right? And no negotiations, not anymore. Meanwhile, the U.S. wants to throw another Hundred billion dollars. The neocons want to throw another hundred billion dollars at Ukraine. I mean, Biden only asked for twenty-four. Now they're talking. Oh, they'll need a hundred billion more. We've already given them somewhere between one hundred thirteen, one hundred fifty billion, however you calculate it. Hundred billion more uh, just to hold the line through twenty twenty-four. You see, the U.S. and Biden kind of want this thing to go away during the election year. And they think that they're going to be able to do that by throwing more money at it and luring the Russians back to the bargaining table, which isn't going to happen. Poland and Slo Slovakia and Hungary said no more arms to them because they're depleted. They're not going to give them their best weapons, right? Congressional Republicans, you know, 
the Speaker uh, McCarthy lost his seat because he kept pushing for aid to Ukraine, and the right wing there said no, Gats and some of these guys, right? And now we've got the war in Israel, and guess who's going to get priority in terms of U.S. weapon and ammunition? It's going to be Israel. And guess what? Ukraine is going to quietly be ignored by the U.S. So there'll be some talk, you know, about it. Maybe they'll throw a few more bucks at it, whatever. Uh, but it's over. It's over. Ukraine military will collapse sometime by next spring. You know, insufficient arms, government crises, no doubt, morale problems. Right? Uh, I believe Russia will occupy more regions, but only the Russian-speaking regions. I don't think, you know, Russia, Russia really wants all of Ukraine. It wants the Russian-speaking areas. And what you will have is that uh, when that happens, uh, uh, Poland, which has its eye on Western Ukraine, because look, Western Ukraine, Lvov, and those areas were Poland until the end of World War II. Yeah, and Stalin pushed Ukraine's area, you know, geography into Poland there and took away part of Poland, gave it to the new Ukraine, took away part of Hungary and Slovakia and Romania and gave it to Ukraine, pushed and created Moldova, pushed the whole border west. Well, you know, that area there has always been anti-Russia. And that, by the way, is the hot seat of the fascists, you know, the right sector and all those uh, neo-fascists there. I don't think Russia really wants that. I don't know whether they'll agree to, uh, you know, let Poland take, take back that area or not. Uh, we'll see. But what's going to happen? You're going to have a failed state there. You're going to have a rump government and state called Ukraine. It may or may not have access to the Black Sea. But it'll be demilitarized. It will never join NATO. Maybe it'll be some kind of UN protectorate for a while. I don't know. But the war is over. Ukraine is lost. It's just a writing on the wall and uh, just how fast and what the form of it will take. Okay, that's it. Next week, uh, we'll see. We'll talk about this impact of the Israeli-Hamas war on Ukraine and in general on the U.S. empire.